So we saw last week um, that Jesus taught in parables for different reasons. And one of those reasons was to help people understand truths that they couldn't have understood before. In fact, if you go back to um, verse of chapter 13, if you skip up to verse 38, I think it is. Oh, no, that's not the right one, sorry. <laughs> verse 11, sorry. Chapter 13, verse 11 of Matthew. We see Jesus saying, this is why he taught in parables. He says, it's been given to you to know, listen, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He says he spoke in parables because some people were blind. He wanted to expose that. But he also spoke in parables to reveal mysteries. Now, when you see that word mystery in the New Testament, don't think of the way we use it in today's English. Mystery as in, okay, that's a mystery. I have no idea what it means. But when the word mystery is used in the New Testament, it always means that which was not known until it was revealed. That's what mystery means. So when when Jesus talks about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about something that he's going to reveal. He specifically is going to reveal. Think of it this way. There was a statue about the kingdom of heaven that was sort of covered with a veil in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, watch this. I'm going to take off the veil. That's a mystery. It's been something that's been unveiled. And so we, we, we saw last week that he talked about many parables that were meant to show us how the kingdom grows, how God's kingdom grows. Here, he's going to now begin to expand some of those mysteries of the kingdom. He's going to reveal things to us about God's kingdom that we couldn't have known unless he told us. Now, to understand this stuff, we have to understand what what he means by kingdom. So, there's sort of four ways to sort of look at God's kingdom. We can look at it as the promised kingdom. We can look at it as the personified kingdom, the provided kingdom, and the perpetual kingdom. What do we mean by those things? First, the promised kingdom, and this is how those who heard Jesus speak these things, this is what they would have been thinking of. God had spoken to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, when your days are fulfilled, that's David, when you're done, he says, you're going to rest with your fathers and I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish, notice, the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, David wanted to build God a temple. And God says, no, not you, but your son. But here's what I'm going to do for you, David. For you, I'm going to make sure from your lineage, from your line, your seed, I'm going to establish a kingdom that's forever. Now, Solomon, his son, was the one who built this kingdom. But this ultimately points to Jesus. Jesus would be that eternal Messiah. And the Jews understood this. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, they're thinking the time when the Messiah comes, God's chosen king comes, as God had promised to David way back there in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So they, they, they understood the promised kingdom. What about the personified kingdom? What do we mean by that? Well, these people are waiting for Jesus to tell them about what the kingdom's going to be like. They, they are thinking, okay, he is the Messiah who's going to usher in the kingdom, but they don't realize that he is actually the kingdom personified. That when they see him, they see the kingdom. Jesus says in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, but these are, the, the, these are they that testify of me. All of scripture, even the Old Testament teaching about the messianic kingdom, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Yet these guys didn't see that. That's what the Gospels are about. The Gospels are about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about 
teaching us to see that in Jesus the King is the kingdom. The authority of God is operating through Him. It's also, though, the provided kingdom. We're going to look later on when we get to John's Gospel about where Jesus says to His disciples, He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And He's speaking of where He's going is to the cross. His death his resurrection, after that, his ascension back into heaven, and after that, his sending of his Holy Spirit. All those things are the way that God's prepared a place for those that belong to him, for his disciples. He provides that. He's, it's the provided kingdom. Through Jesus' work, we can be citizens of God's kingdom. But also, it's going to be a perpetual kingdom. What the Jews didn't understand is that the the Messiah, God's chosen king, would come twice. He'd come the first time as a suffering servant to provide entrance into the kingdom. But he'd come again as a conquering king. And when he comes again, he sets up his kingdom forever. That's important because to to understand these kingdom parables, when Jesus is is giving these stories, he's saying, okay, here's here's a, a kind of an earthly illustration. He's setting aside a heavenly or eternal truth. He's doing that so that we get a better idea of what the kingdom is. So we know what it means to live in his kingdom. So that's what we want to talk about today. I want to talk about basically three three things that are revealed about God's kingdom from Jesus in these parables. The first is this, the kingdom requires the ultimate price. Look at verse 44. It says again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now let me just say really clearly, like I said last week, with this parable and the parable after it, the way I'm going to interpret this is a minority view. I'm not the only person who thinks this, but I am in a minority view. I just want to be clear about this. Now, Jesus here talks about this. He says, he he gives this parable of this treasure hidden in a field. Now, remember we talked about how the parable of parables, the parable of the soils, that gives us a key to interpret the other parables. You guys remember that? What did Jesus say about the field in verse 38 of Matthew 13? He says plainly in interpreting his own parable, he says the field is the world. That's what he says. So we have a picture here of the world being purchased. Why? For the treasure therein. Now, a lot of people would say, a lot of, a lot of really good uh, people who love Jesus, a lot of very clever Bible scholars have said that this is a reference, both this parable and the next parable, are a reference to how we have to be willing to do anything to get onto the kingdom. The kingdom is worth any sacrifice. Now that is true. Being a part of God's kingdom is worth any sacrifice. And Jesus definitely calls those who are going to follow him to put him first, to make any sacrifice necessary for allegiance to him. There's no doubt about that. But looking at the way Jesus says this parable, it seems pretty clear to me that he's not talking about what we need to do to get the, 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 to get the kingdom. It's not what we need to do to purchase it, but what he's done to purchase it. If, the, if, if our entrance into the kingdom is dependent upon us paying the ultimate price, I doubt any of us will get in. I doubt that any of us have been in the place where we've, we could say with a clear conscience, I've given up everything for Jesus. I doubt that. It might feel like that at times, but I doubt that's the case. Now, what this is talking about, I believe, is this reality that it's Jesus who paid the ultimate price. He gave 
all for us. Now, I think this is for this parable, the parable of hidden treasure, but also for the parable of this pearl of great price. Because notice they, they both have the same idea of selling all that you have and purchase this great thing. So what does this tell us? What does this tell us about this Jesus paying this ultimate price? What does it say even about us? Listen. It says that, that part of the reason he's done this, we're, one of the reasons we're purchased is we've been purchased for joy. This man who finds this treasure hidden in the field, he sells all he has and he buys it for what reason? It says in verse 44, for the joy over it. Here's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 2. It says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus because he's this. Listen, he, as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus endure the pain of the cross? For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? It was him being back in right fellowship with the Father and making a way that we could be in that same fellowship. The joy that Jesus had was the joy of seeing us be made right with God. That's why he suffered the way he did. Now this is important because what Jesus is talking about here when he's he's trying to expand this mystery, anyone who would have read this, his audience would have thought a couple things. One, they would have thought, okay, sure, the kingdom is of the highest value. We get that. We expect that. We want that. They were longing for God's kingdom to come. They wanted the Messiah to come and free them from Roman oppression. They wanted the Messiah to come and and there'd be, again, the prosperity that they'd had under Solomon's reign. They wanted that to happen. But when he says, okay, for that to happen, things have to, all that you have has to be sold and then you can purchase it. They would have thought, well, how does that work? Some would have been very rich, like the rich young ruler, and would have thought, I, I don't know if I can give up everything. I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. Others would have had nothing. So what, what am I going to give up? And there would have been this like, conflict of, okay, I can understand the kingdom so valuable, but how am I going to purchase it? And that's the point. The point is, he wants us to see we can't purchase it. The ultimate price has to be paid for us to enter into the kingdom, and that price has to be paid by Jesus. That's the price that he did pay. And he paid it for what? For joy. Ever feel like that, you know, maybe God, okay, maybe God saved me, but he did so reluctantly? Do you know what I'm saying? Or maybe God forgives me, but he does so mm, because he, I have to twist his arm to do it. Do you ever feel that way? You know what I'm saying? You mess up really bad and, and you know you've messed up and you, you go and you confess to God, God forgive me. And maybe you think you don't feel guilty enough so you kind of beat yourself up a bit, try to make yourself feel as guilty as you can. Oh, I'm, I've really messed up. And, and you almost have a sense that God's going, okay, I guess I have to forgive you. Like God's like steaming mad at you. And he's only going to forgive you on a technicality. Well, I guess because Jesus died, I have to forgive you. We can have that feeling. We can know in our head it's not true, but we can have that feeling. But you know what the scripture says? It says that it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus prays for those who would believe in him in John chapter 17. He says this, He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure 
of my joy within them. Jesus is praying for those who would believe in him, and he's praying that we would have the same joy that he has. He died for us to have that joy. You guys remember after Jesus rose from the dead and he, he appears to the disciples and it says that they, they believed, but they didn't believe for joy. Do you guys remember that? I think it's in Luke's gospel. I think that often describes our faith. I believe, because I dare not, but ain't a whole lot of joy there. Why? I believe what keeps us from rejoicing in Jesus is because we actually, we're not sure if all that he's done is enough. Did he pay the ultimate price or did he just pay a really big price and now the rest is up to me to pay? Can we really say that it is finished? Because that's what Jesus said on the cross. It's finished. It's paid for. I don't know about you, but I find Saturday night, Sunday morning is when my sin seems to want to come to the surface. (laughs) You know, I seem to make some really big, stupid mistakes at those times. So that often if I'm coming to church, I'm kind of just feeling a bit under it. Even if I've prayed and confessed and tried to get my heart ready to preach, I'm still kind of sometimes feeling a bit under it. I wonder sometimes if the Lord sort of says, listen, I, I want you to be really aware of your sin on a Saturday night or Sunday morning so that you remember it's not have, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with me. It's me. I've paid the ultimate price. See, we've been purchased for joy, but not only that, look what it says in the parable of the pearl great price. It says, he, uh, he, this merchant, he's seeking beautiful pearls, but when he finds one pearl of great price, He sells all that he has and he buys that. Now again, I want you to think about what the audience who first heard this would have thought. They they would know what a a, a pearl merchant was. They would know that this this merchant would go to the seaside where the the oysters were and he would get those and buy those oysters, usually probably unopened. And he would then open the oyster after oyster and he'd pull these pearls out and he'd gather them and then he'd go sell them to the jewelers or whoever wanted to buy them. So you get this picture of someone who did this on a regular basis and was happy to get you know, maybe a half a dozen or a dozen pearls that he could string together and sell and make some, some profit for his family. But he finds this one pearl, and this pearl is so, of such great value, he gets rid of everything else that he owns and he places all his bets on that one pearl. Now they would have heard this and thought, that guy's nuts. How does he know he's not going to find even a bigger one after this? They also would have thought, well, that's not a very good businessman. You, you sort of you found the pearl, so keep the pearl and keep all the other stuff you have at the same time. So again, the parable could be a bit confusing, but the point is what? He sold all that he had and he purchased it. He bought this. So what's the pearl great price? Again, I believe it's us. We're that pearl great price. So why does it say one pearl? Well, we were purchased, listen, we were purchased as one for unity. Look again what Jesus says in in, in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, same prayer. He says, and the glory which you gave me, he's praying to to, to the Father, the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Remember, glory means um, the unique value of something. So Jesus has this unique value of being 100% God and 100% man, being this perfect man, that perfect humanity. Jesus gives that to us by faith. 
that perfect, that place of perfection and innocence. He says, that they may be one, notice, just as we are one, as Jesus and the Father are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. See, here's the reality. Jesus says the kingdom requires the ultimate price being paid. He pays that price. Listen, he pays that price that we might have joy and that we might be one. Do you know what unifies all believers around the world? Every single one, no matter what tribe they're from, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what their socioeconomic background is, do you know what makes us one? Our faith is in Christ alone. We recognize that it's His work for us that makes us right with God. He purchased us. That's what makes us one. What's the basis of our unity? Is it that we like the same kind of music? (laughs) Is it that we like the same kind of food? Is it that we meet in the same building? Is it that we have the same skin color? Is it that we have the same financial goals? Is it that we have the same worship style? No. It's that we believe that Christ purchased us. Why should we be committed to each other? Because we've all been bought at a price. He bought us all as one. And he wants us to live that way to show the world that he is who he is. Now, there's something else about this I think it's really important. I want to kind of talk about this because we live in a day and age that where, where people are really wanting to, um, to understand their identity and wanting to understand their value. And so I want to kind of talk about the difference between inherit, an inheritant value and a determined value. Because as human beings, we potentially have both. Every human being has an inherited value. Uh, inheritance value. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 9. It says, this is God given a covenant to Noah after the flood, after uh, the ark's been opened back up. God says, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now, whether you're, whatever your opinion is on capital punishment, at least for a season, it's what God wanted. But it's not so much important that it was capital punishment, but Why? Why? Why does God say this is important? God says, this is why. A murderer has to be his life taken. Why? Because I want people to recognize that every human being is an image bearer of God. That's where their value comes from. Do you realize this is why this is why we don't like euthanasia? This is why we don't like abortion. This is why many Christians don't like capital punishment. For the very reason that every person is made in the image of God and they have inherent value. Doesn't mean there shouldn't be punishment for crime. Doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences for actions. But we need to recognize people have inherent value. So many times we look at people and we judge them based on what they can do for us as individuals or what they do for society as a whole. But that's not a person's value. 
A person value is they're an image bearer of God. Now, there's something else, though. We don't just have an inherent value, but also, listen, we have what I would call determined value. What's that? It's the value that something that someone places on something else. So I have next to my bed a frame that probably costs less than a tenner, that's for sure. It's a very expensive frame. And in that frame is a picture of my five kids when they're all really small. My favorite picture of my kids. Now, to anybody else, that's just a kind of a cheap frame with an old picture. But I have determined that that is one of my most precious possessions. It reminds me of a simpler day when my kids still thought I was cool. We do. It's just it's a, it's one of my favorite possessions. Why? Because it's worth much to anybody? No, because it's so rare? No, not really. Because I've determined, I've placed that value on it. That's a determined value. Do you realize, in a very real way, in these parables, Jesus is saying, here's your determined value. That I look at you, not because of your own worth, not even because of your inherent value, but I look at you and I say, you're a treasure hidden in the field. God so loved the world, he Buys the world, why? To get the treasure. You're a pearl of great price. You see, we, we live in a day and age that says, you know what? You got to tell yourself, I am who I say I am. I'm as good as I determine myself to be. And you know what ends up happening? When we think that way, we all end up realizing that we're not that great. Maybe you try to find your value by what other people say about you and so you're devastated when someone's not happy with what you've done. Maybe you find your value in what your parents said about you growing up. Maybe you find your value about what other Christians say about you. Maybe you find your value in about what you do for yourself. But you know, here's the reality. Jesus says, here's how I want you to find your value. You have inherent value because you're created in the image of God. You're an image bearer but you have determined value. You're one for whom Christ died. Now the Bible says that Jesus died, he's a savior of all men, especially those who believe. So that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all people. Here's what this tells me. Here's what I believe about this. I believe that means that every human being I look at, even those who treat me bad, even those who who just seem to be the most obnoxious people in the world, every single person is someone made in the image of God, is an image bearer of God, and someone for whom Christ died. You know what that means? That means that my view of them needs needs to be informed by that first and foremost. Not that we agree on something politically or religiously. Not that we have the same tastes or desires but that that's the value that we have. See, we as Jesus followers should be those that set that standard, that we demonstrate the value of all people. Why? Because we know that God's the one who's created people and Jesus is the one who died for people. He paid the ultimate price. This is why in the kingdom... In God's kingdom, in God's economy, we don't exalt people. At least we're not supposed to. 
In God's economy, we see all ourselves as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. We have equal value, equal access to God through Jesus, equal value regardless of what our giftedness is. (laughs) Do we treat each other this way? This is what Jesus is trying to reveal to us, I believe. In fact, Jesus says this, listen, in Luke 12, 32, he says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to save you. He wants to save people. Do you believe that? Now, So that's the first thing we see in these parables. The kingdom requires the ultimate price. The second thing is this. The kingdom brings ultimate justice. Look at verse 47. I've got to pick it up. Run out of time. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. Now, you guys know how they used to fish, right? They would have this huge net. It It had weights around the outside, and they would sort of chuck it out into the water. It would sink. And then after it would sink, they would begin to pull it back in. And in pulling it back in, they would catch these fish in the nets, pull them into the boats or pull them into shore. And that's how they would gather these fish. Now, it's interesting because he says really clearly some of every kind. And so you get this picture that Jesus is sharing that basically he's gathering anyone who's willing to get caught. And this is what happens. Sometimes we... Maybe we're sharing with someone with uh, Jesus with somebody, or they're starting to come to church, and, and as we're having these kind of conversations, they kind of know they're about to get caught, so they whoop, they swim out of the net. But anybody who's willing to get caught gets caught. That's what basically Jesus is saying here. And, and I bring in willingness because he went to his fellow Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He went to his fellow Jews with the gospel. He wanted to tell them about who he was. And here's what happens. Here's what he says in Matthew 23, 37. This is how Jesus sums up his experience with the Jewish nation. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but what? You were not willing. Hey, I wanted to sort of get you close. I know we're mixing metaphors here, but the gathering still fits. I wanted to bring you close but you weren't willing. The net gets cast out to anyone willing to get caught. But then he says in verse 48, which when it's full, then they drew to shore. What do they do? They sat down, they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. Obviously the Jews specifically who would have heard this would have known there's certain fish they weren't allowed to eat, certain fish they were allowed to eat under their Levitical laws. So the ones they weren't allowed, they got tossed out. Well, this is interesting. Because this, this idea is, is that there's a distinguishing between good and bad that goes on. This is part of the kingdom. In the kingdom, it's not like, hey, everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter. Yeah, everyone is welcome, but not everyone stays. <laughs> Something has to take place. There's a distinguishing between the good and the bad. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, well, yeah, I think I'm good. I think I'm good enough. That's good. Or you might be thinking, oh, no, I'm one of the bad ones. I'm getting checked out. You might be wondering, who's good? Who's bad? How does that work? Well, you know, Scripture says plainly there is none good but God. Jesus said that. So what does he mean by this? I believe what he's talking about here, the difference between good and bad is the difference between those who are repentant and those who are unrepentant. Those who have turned to God away from their sin 
and those who refuse to turn to God away from their sin. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I believe this. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, Jesus answered and he said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus tells his disciples when they hear the story of these Galileans who went through some horrible suffering, they're thinking, man, they must have been really bad sinners. But Jesus is going, uh, they're no worse than you, and guess what? If you don't repent, you're also going to perish. The Apostle Paul lists some very, uh, gives a very sobering list in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. Paul writes, do, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? That don't go to heaven. That's what he means. He says, Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It's very sobering words, isn't it? But what does he go on to say? Listen to this. And some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, listen, the church is not made up of people that are good. The church is made up of people who are repentant. They've turned to the good God. They've turned from their sin. And that's not a one-time gig. It's a daily thing. Daily turning back to God, saying, God, forgive me, change me, keep this work up. God says, I'm going to. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to sanctify you, set you apart for my purposes. I'm going to justify you, render you innocent. This, this is what we need to understand. When it comes to good and bad, the kingdom brings us ultimate justice, but that ultimate justice is not simply, listen, you get what you deserve, because if that's all there was, we'd all be in big trouble. Now, the ultimate justice, it, it has to do with God giving us what Christ deserves. We get to be declared innocent. We get to be changed from the inside out as we turn to him. When I say the words church discipline, how many of you guys know what I mean? Church discipline. Go raise your hand if you know what I mean. So a few of you. Some of you guys are like, oh, I'm not too sure. Yeah, not sure. <laughs> well, you're not sure probably because you don't see it happen very often, unfortunately. What church discipline is, this basically is this. Church discipline is that as... God's people, and as God's people have a leadership that's responsible for the souls of the people in that church, that's what we are as pastors, that we have a responsibility to call everyone to turn to God. And all of us as believers have a responsibility to help each other turn to God. So here's what happens, okay? Church discipline, you can read about this in Matthew chapter 18. Church discipline is basically this. If somebody in our midst says, I'm a Jesus follower, I want to walk after him, I believe he died for my sins and rose from the dead. If they say those things, but then they continue to sin in the things that we saw Paul listed. They continue to walk in greed, they continue to walk in sexual sin, they continue to walk in selfishness and abusiveness. Then we, talk, we tell those people, listen, we love you, Christ died for that, you've got to turn away from that sin and walk with Jesus. We go to those people in private. If we see them, if I see someone, I go to them in private. If you see someone, you should go to them in private. If they don't repent, Jesus says, bring two or three people with you. Do it again. 
If they still don't repent, he says, bring them before the elders. If they still don't repent, kick them out of the church. Does that sound harsh? It's harsh. It sounds harsh. It sounds harsh to me. It's difficult, isn't it, to think about. The issue is never, listen, the issue is never, oh, there's people that have sinned in our midst. Guess what? Every single time we're together, we're all full of sin. All of us have sinned. We've sinned today. The issue is not, are we sinning as God's people? The issue is, are we repenting as God's people? God calls us to live lives of repentance. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's talking about not a, 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 a realm where we can just do whatever we want, nor is he talking about a realm where we have to be perfect to stay in. He's talking about a reality where he's changing us from the inside out, so we're constantly turning back to him. And he makes that distinction. Who's turning to me? Who's not turning to me? That's sobering stuff. Now we're talking about the kingdom brings ultimate justice. Look what he, Jesus interprets this for us. He says, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's heavy stuff. Let's remember, we're talking about the words in red. These are the words of Jesus Christ. These are not my words. He's saying this. See, we tend to think of ourselves as, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're we're going to bring justice to this earth. We're going to make the world right. Guys, do you realize that we produce enough food in this world so that nobody should ever go hungry? And yet we have more famine now than we've probably ever had. Why? We have the technology to, to not just produce that food, but to get that food to people who are hungry. What is the problem? The problem is people are still evil. And they use, that, they use their, their greed and they use their desire for power to manipulate the starving people in their midst to keep and gain that power. So even though we have the technology to produce the food, we have the knowledge to do this and get it to them, they don't get it. In other words, it's not a matter of technology. We'll we'll figure out the way to do this. It's a matter of our hearts. We're still a broken humanity. We're not going to bring justice on this earth. It's not going to be us as the church getting it so perfect that finally everything is going to look just the way it's supposed to be. It's going to be, listen, Jesus coming back. When he talks about the angels coming, he's talking about they're, they're, <coughs> they are those kind of doing the, the labor for him, but he's the <coughs> one who makes the judgments. Jesus said this in John chapter 5. He said, Indeed, the day, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again, and those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. He says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Jesus is the judge, and we need to understand, listen, that the ultimate judgment comes with the judge when he comes back. This is what he says about the kingdom. Not about you, but this is comforting to me. It's comforting in one sense because One, ultimately I know uh, justice is going to happen. That that people who continue to, these guys who are these despots in some of these countries that are allowing their people to starve to death 
so they can maintain power, God is going to deal with them. I'm comforted by that. I'm comforted by the fact that one day I'm going to live in a world that isn't full of pedophiles and rapists and corporate, um, you know, greedy people and people like me. That one day the world's going to finally be perfect. It's going to be as we want. I look forward to that. How do I know it's going to happen? I know it's going to happen because Jesus said he's the judge. He said, here's what's going to happen in the kingdom. And as he promised, he died and rose from the dead. And this is what Paul said. Paul says in Acts 17 that we know that Jesus is going to judge the world. Why? Because he rose from the dead. That's why we know. He's going to bring in justice, ultimate justice. So our goal is not so much about us. We're going to fix the world. Now listen, it's good for us to pursue justice now, isn't it? It's good for us to feed the hungry, to provide for the poor, to heal the sick. It's good for us to do this. We should pursue these things in Jesus' name. But we should know that the justice is going to come with the judge. It's when Jesus comes back that it's all going to be there. Lastly, the kingdom provides ultimate truth. Look what he says in verse 51. Jesus said to him, have you understood these things? And they said, yes, Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if they really did. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, we got it, Lord. We got it. No problem. Because that's what we do, don't we? Yeah, mm, yeah, that's good. That's good. It's deep. Mm, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Now, what's interesting, though, is Jesus wants them to understand. He's asking him, do you really understand this? And this is important because when we're talking about truth, we are talking about this reality that Jesus wants to develop in us an informed faith. He doesn't call us to a blind faith. We don't just say, I believe in Jesus. Who's Jesus? I don't know, but I believe in him. I believe he died for my sins. What are your sins? I don't know, but he died from. How does his death pay for your sins? I have no idea, but it feels good. If that's the kind of faith that we have, it's not going to probably last. Jesus asks his disciples, do you understand these things? Because he wants us to have an informed faith. He wants us to understand who he is, what he's done, how that works now, what that means for eternity. So when they say yes, he says, okay, verse 52, therefore, he says, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder. A householder would have been like the sort of the chief servant, uh, a steward, you might say. So they didn't own the house, but they were responsible, of all, responsible for all the goods in the house. They had a stewardship of it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. <coughs> now, what is he talking about here? Well, he mentions scribes, and his audience would have thought, oh, scribes, they're the ones that make sure that we understand all the traditions of the fathers. The scribes are the ones that tell us, okay, here's what the law says, and here's what all, the, all our fathers, all those before us told us, here's the only way you can apply this law. You have to apply it this way. So they were the ones that kind of made sure the traditions of the elders that, that, that had kind of been passed down from generation about how God's people were supposed to walk, those traditions got kept. And so they were to keep the old paths. But Jesus says really clear, he says, listen, 
the scribe who's instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a household steward who doesn't just bring out the old things, but the old and the new. He knows when he needs to bring out the stuff that's old and when he needs to bring out something that's brand new. This is important. Because basically what he's trying to say is, is that he calls us as to be like householders, stewards, and stewards of what? Stewards of the truth. That God says, listen, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm telling you these mysteries of the kingdom, I'm giving you these mysteries, and you're now accountable to respond to these things, to know how to use these things. I want you to learn how to use these things. I want you to take this truth, and I want you to filter all the traditions that you've been taught before. Now, let me be really clear. Tradition by itself isn't bad. You, you may not feel like, you know, I don't know how much church experience you guys all have, but you might feel like, well, this isn't a very traditional church. This is kind of a new contemporary church. We're not really traditional. But make no doubt about it, we stand on traditions. Some of them are, are quite new traditions, maybe 20 or 30 years old. The fact that we teach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, that's a tradition. It was passed down to me by the guys who pastored me. It's a good tradition. We're going to keep it, but it's still a tradition. It's not how it always has happened. It's a tradition that we have. The, the understanding of, of the gospel, the understanding that the good news is that Christ uh, has saved us and we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that's a tradition. It's been passed down to us uh, for generations, but it's still a tradition, so we're gonna hold, but we're going to still hold on to that. Why are we holding on to these things? Because we go back to Scripture, we go back to truth, and we go, you know what? Those things fit with truth. But there are other traditions that we let go of. We examine what we do and we think, do I really need to keep doing this? Or maybe traditions that we haven't done, we think, oh, that's just a tradition. We realize, you know, maybe that's a good thing we should do. I'll tell you one that I really struggle with. The Lord's table. Communion. It's something that Jesus established and different churches have different traditions. What are we supposed to do? And I wrestle with it because I look at Scripture and I think, man, this is something that that these, the early church seemed to do like every day. And we get bored if we do it more than twice a month. Something's not right there. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying, God, I want to know what the truth is so that we can do this right. The point is, Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to the the kingdom, the kingdom brings, provides ultimate truth. We look at Jesus, what he taught, and we say, this is how we know how to do everything else. These are the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, Right now, we kind of live between we live between the provided kingdom and the perpetual kingdom. So we live in this tension of the already, we're in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. And in that place, we need to pursue the truth of God. God, what would you have us do? How would you have us live? What is, what's faith supposed to look like? And we go back to the words of Jesus time and time again. This is why we look at the scriptures. We look at the scriptures because we believe, we look at the, this is what we're doing in the series, we look at the words of Jesus and say, okay, Lord, we're not ashamed of you, we're not ashamed of your words. Show us how we ought to live. We want to be good stewards and we want to bring out of your treasure things new and old. So we know how to walk with you.